Thank you, Will. You know, I grew up in a Baptist church where on Sunday morning um, we sang hymns, songs about the cross and about the resurrection, and I love what's happened uh, through the last few decades as God has uh, prompted through the Holy Spirit the creation of these new songs that uh, remind us in a fresh new way about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. I, um, I was doing some study a few years ago for a series, and I stumbled on this fact that there is a, a star created, born, every second somewhere in the universe. And that's amazing to me because I kind of had this feeling about the universe was a fixed state. And it reminded me that God is still creating. And uh, he's creating new things. And so singing new songs about Jesus and the cross and the resurrection and the efficacy of his blood um, is uh, amazing to me. Glad that I'm here this morning. We have been um, talking with leadership, your leadership, and praying for months about joining you in your vision to reach this community. So it is a, a privilege for me to be here. If you have your Bibles open to uh, Joshua, the book of Joshua, chapter 3. Joshua is one of my favorite books in the Bible, and uh, it is the first book after the Pentateuch. You have those five uh, seminal, basic, foundational books, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then you've got, you've got Joshua. So we're going to be digging into Joshua chapter 3 this morning. If you know uh, your Bible, you know that Joshua, the book of Joshua, um, uh, describes a transitional time for the people of God. Uh, it's a turning point in the history of Israel. You might recall, just to set this up, that um, the children of Israel had left Canaan, they'd left the promised land um, because of a drought. Uh, they end up in Egypt. Joseph, one of the twelve, uh, was already there. Uh, he had been exalted to the second most high position in all of Egypt by Pharaoh. Uh, but there came a time where the Pharaoh did not know Joseph and where there were so many Hebrews that they began to enslave them and eventually seclude them and only use them as slaves uh, to build their cities. So God raised up Charlton Heston to go and uh, deliver them. Uh, and get them out of Egypt. They'd been there 400 years, and uh, the Bible says that God heard their cry, and uh, he sent uh, Moses for that delivery. And through a series of miracles, uh, God gets them out of Egypt. Uh, the most primary of the miracles was the Passover lamb, the shedding of the blood of an innocent lamb, that blood placed on the doorposts. And by faith, they believed, they took God at his word, that the death angel, when it would come by, would pass over their home and uh, not take their firstborn. And of course, what a beautiful picture of the gospel and the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. So uh, they make it through uh, the, the, the Red Sea. Uh, they head into the Sinai. God takes them down to this Mount Sinai where Moses had met God for the first time months before that, and um, eventually after they get the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments are these, these, these incredible 
uh, wisdom, truths, and, and, and rules to live by. And so those Ten Commandments then um, tell us how to, where to relate to God properly, how to relate to each other properly. And uh, so they're heading toward the promised land. That's the whole point. They're heading back to the land of milk and honey. They're heading back to the place of their birth. And um, they get up to the southern part of, of uh, the promised land, and they get to a place called Kadesh Barnea. And um, so Moses sends in those 12 spies, right? And they come back, and 10 of them say, no, we can't go in. It's just too intimidating. We can't do this. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, we must do this. Our God is bigger uh, than all of the challenges ahead of us. But they don't listen to the two. They decide that they are going to uh, not take God at his word. And so God says, all right, take another few laps around Mount Sinai. And uh, he sentences them to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years until finally now they come back to the promised land. Now they're not coming up from the south. They're coming up from the east side on the east side of the Jordan River. And now Moses has passed away. The mantle has fallen to Joshua, now the new leader, to take them into the promised land, to take them into this land that God had promised for them. So follow along as I read Joshua chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Now Joshua started early the next morning and left the Acacia Grove with all the Israelites. They went as far as the Jordan and stayed there before crossing. And after three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, when you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God carried by the Levitical priests, you must break camp and follow it. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between yourselves and the Ark. Don't go near it so that you can see the way to go, for you haven't traveled this way before. Now Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves. Because the Lord will do wonders among you. And then he said to the priests, take the Ark of the Covenant and go on ahead of the people. So they carried the Ark of the Covenant and went ahead of them. And then the Lord spoke to Joshua. He said, today I will begin to exalt you, Joshua, in the sight of all of Israel so that they will know that I will be with you just as I was with Moses. Command the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant. When you reach the edge of the waters, stand in the Jordan. And then Joshua told the Israelites, come closer and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And he said, you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly dispossess before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, the Oklahomaites. When the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth goes ahead of you into the Jordan, now choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. And when the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, come to rest in the Jordan's waters, its waters will be cut off. And the water flowing downstream will stand up in a mass. Of course, this is reminiscent of their crossing of the Red Sea 40 years before that. Verse 14. And when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant ahead of the people. And now the Jordan overflows its banks throughout the harvest season. 
Now, the harvest season, there's two harvest seasons in Israel. There's a spring harvest and a fall harvest. And so this would be the spring harvest as the runoff of the, the snow melt on Mount Hermon would make its way down through the Jordan River Valley. But as soon as the priests carrying the ark reached the Jordan, their feet touched the water at its edge. And the water flowing downstream stood up and rising up in mass that extended as far as Adam, sitting next to Zarathon. And the water flowing downstream into the Sea of Arabah, the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. And the people crossed opposite Jericho. And the priests carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until the entire nation had finished crossing the Jordan. I don't know about you, but this is certainly a time of uncertainty when you read through this, a time of uncertainty for the Israelites. Um, the Jordan River was at flood stage. Now, if you've been, anybody been to Israel uh, in the last few years, you see the Jordan now after flood control, uh, its widest place, maybe as wide as this uh, worship center here. Uh, but in those days, there was no flood control. Uh, the Jordan River would swell up during the spring, the melt-off from Mount Hermon and some of the other mountains to the north. Uh, and so they tell us that it would, might would swell as, as wide as a mile. That wouldn't be hundreds of feet deep. Uh, it might only be 10, 12, 15 feet deep in some places. But when you think about getting 3 million people across flooded uh, river valley, 10, 12, 15 feet with the waters rushing off the snowmelt, it would be quite a challenge, quite a risk, and they would have to be uncertain about that. Now, you add on top of that, not only do they have to get across the swollen and flooding river, uh, Jordan River, uh, what's waiting on them, for them on the other side is exactly the same thing and the same reasons that they chose not to go in 40 years before. The reason they didn't go in 40 years before is because when those 10 came back, they said, oh, it is a land of milk and honey. It is amazing. In fact, there are great clusters so large that two guys had to carry them on a pole, and that's how big and how flourishing this place was. But they said, this is a land filled with giants. They look like Hulk Hogan on steroids. Well, Hulk Hogan is on steroids, but I mean, they're just, they're big guys and walled cities. Now, these were not a warring people. They had been enslaved for 200 of the 400 years. They had wandered around as nomads in the wilderness for 40 years. They had, they had no strategy of warfare. They had no weaponry of warfare. And, and so here they come against, they're, they're looking, standing on the east side of the Jordan River Valley, looking across, and just a couple miles on the west, there is Jericho. Uh, uh, archaeologists have said that the wall that surrounded Jericho might have been as, as high as 40 feet and 10 to 12 feet thick. And so for this people coming into that area, not just getting across the Jordan River, at flood stage, but then taking on these giant of men who had the, the warring weaponry and strategy and the defenses of Jericho had to be intimidating. It was a time of great uncertainty, great risk, and great challenge. There are those times in our lives where we come to the Jordan River. 
where we have great uncertainty, great challenge ahead of us, and yes, even great risk. So how do we get through those? I think this story this morning um, gives us a lot of encouragement and instructions about how to get through the times of great challenge and great uncertainty. First of all, I think the text reveals that if we're going to do this, we have to place God firmly at the forefront of our lives. We have to place God firmly at the forefront of our, our lives. Verses 3 and 4, again, let me read these. And so um, uh, the, he commanded the people, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God carried by the Levitical priests, you must break camp and follow it. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between yourselves and the ark. Don't go near it so that you can see the way to go because you haven't traveled this way before. Now, again, if you know your Bibles, you know that, 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 that there was a pillar uh, that, that led the children of Israel their whole 40 years. It was a symbol of God's presence, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of light by night. And so this was the symbol of God's presence. When it stopped, they stopped. When it moved, they moved. But now from this point on, a symbol of the presence of God was the Ark of the Covenant. Now, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, if you've seen the Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, you know, kind of got a feel for it. They, they actually built that box uh, consistent with uh, the dimensions uh, uh, explained in, in the Bible. And so inside the Ark of the Covenant, this now this new symbol of God's presence, um, you find uh, there would be Aaron's rod. It was Aaron's rod that Moses used to touch the Nile and, and turn it to blood. It was, it was Aaron's rod that Moses used in all of these different um, um, miracles. And so Aaron's rod represented the power of God. Also in the, the Ark of the Covenant was um, the, the ten, camp, ten Commandments, the tablets, and that represented the, the purpose of God. And then also there was a, a, a little jar of, of manna. The mystery bread that God had caused to accumulate every morning for 40 years so that the people of God could, could taste of it and eat of it and be sustained by it. And that represented the provision of God. So the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence now and his leadership is to go before them. And there, if you notice in the text, it says that they're supposed to say a, a thousand feet, a thousand yards behind it. That way, everybody could see it, and everybody could follow it. Now, when we come to times of uncertainty, I think there's a, a point of application there for us, and that is to make sure that God is at the forefront of our lives, at the forefront of our hearts. What did Jesus say in, in Matthew 6? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. It's the idea of placing God first in our hearts, wanting God's will more than our will, God's desires more than our desires, God's pleasure more than our pleasure, God's way more than our way. Placing God first in our hearts and our lives. It's hard to do. Typically, human beings are fairly self-absorbed, am I right? Uh, we're fairly self-absorbed, but then we get even more self-absorbed when, when times are uncertain. We get scared. We tend to, tend to pull back. We tend, what, what's best for me? How do I take care of me? And, and that, that just, just the opposite thing that needs to happen when you come to times of uncertainty. That is, you, you place God and his desire and his will at the forefront. 
So the year is 1981. Um, I, was, uh, I was born in 51, so I was about to have my 30th birthday. Sue and I had been married for five weeks. And um, so this is my beautiful wife down here. Honey, why don't you just stand up, let them see how pretty you are. <laughs> yeah, there you go, there. I know, you're looking at me and go, how in the world, right? Okay. So um, I was in the oil business. I, was, I, went to, uh, I graduated from the University of Oklahoma in 73. Thank, thank you for that. And uh, so I, I went down to Houston to work for Shell Oil in their downtown office. I was a landman. And then I went to work for an independent oil operator. And uh, I was active in ministry uh, as a layman, teaching Bible studies and um, discipling uh, men. And um, anyway, there, was, there came a time of transition in my own life. Uh, just been married a little bit had a sense of that, that something needed to change in my life, a different direction. It was Wednesday afternoon, um, about May the 24th, as I remember. And so uh, about 4 o'clock, the phone rings. The guy on the other end of the line was a guy named Steve Kunkel. And um, um, he had got my name from a guy that I had discipled a couple of years earlier that had moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico. So Steve is calling me from Albuquerque, New Mexico, Hoffmantown Baptist Church. He said, hey, listen, we have your name. Would you be interested in moving to Albuquerque and helping us set up uh, home Bible studies uh, and helping us reach our community for Jesus? It's like a phone call from heaven. I, I can't explain it. I didn't understand it. I didn't know what it would mean exactly. But there was something inside of me going, yeah, this is this." This is right. This is what I'm supposed to do. So we talked about 45 minutes. I hung up, and then I started thinking, oh, my gosh, I've got to tell this to my wife. Because she had grown up in Houston. She had gone to the University of Houston as a cheerleader. She had lived with her parents much of the time when she was in college. Now she was out and just started to teach. So, and she thought she was marrying somebody that would have a decent salary that would uh, kind of take care of her and keep close to your parents and all this kind of stuff. So I'm driving home on the Southwest Freeway, if you've ever been to Houston, which is a religious experience in its own right there. And I'm trying to, so, but all, I'm not thinking about the traffic. I am thinking about Sue. What am I going to do when I walk in and I say, honey, I got this phone call and something in me tells me that this is the Lord. I wasn't, and part of me was not excited about it. I was used to having a nice money. I had all my friends. My life was set. So I walked in the house, and uh, Sue was uh, in a part of our uh, bedroom, and I said, honey, what would you do if, if, if I quit my job, we moved to Albuquerque, and went in the ministry? So I paused, thinking that she was just going to fall down on the floor and just begin to squall. And so... But she said, you know what? I think that'd be the best thing that ever happened to us. So I fell down on the floor and started to squall. <laughs> if I hadn't had been walking with God, I, I hadn't have made sure that God's will was going to be my will, that his desire was going to be my desire, then I would have missed, I think, maybe the most important decision I would ever make after accepting Christ and marrying Sue. It's so important, particularly in times of transition and challenge, to place God firmly at the forefront of our lives. 
Another, I think, application here is, uh, and a teaching is that, that we need to consecrate ourselves in times of transition and, and challenge. Look at verse 5 again. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves because the Lord will do wonders among you. He'll do wonders among you tomorrow if you consecrate yourselves. Now, consecration is not a word that we use very often in our vocabulary nowadays. The New Testament word, the closest uh, word is sanctification. Um, the Old Testament concept, you see a little bit more of a, of a segmentation to it. So uh, consecration is like a, a separation from, uh, a cleansing of, and a devotion to, all right? So kind of a separation from, a cleansing of, and a devotion to. So he says, consecrate yourselves. In times of transition, you want to make sure that you are consecrated so that you can hear and then follow the word and the will of God. Separation means stepping away from the, what is common. Stepping away from what is common. And what I've asked myself uh, many times, particularly in times of transition, am I involved in anything that would keep me from hearing God's voice? Am I involved in anything that would keep me from hearing God's voice? And so there's times that I will enter into a time of prayer and fasting. There are times when I, I will withhold from myself uh, just the common pleasures of life. I might withhold uh, food or a certain kind of food. Um, I love Starbucks, so sometimes I'll say, I'm not going to drink Starbucks for a month. That is a huge sacrifice for me. But the idea of, of pulling away and say, you know, I'm going to pull away, step away from the common so that I can hear the Lord's voice more clearly. A separation from, and then a cleansing of. You know, in Isaiah chapter 6, you see this in other places, particularly in the book of Revelation um, the angels are around the throne of God. And what are they saying day and night? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I'm so grateful for God's grace and mercy in my life. But I am aware of the fact that, um, that the Scripture says that I'm to be holy even as God is holy. And what I've learned in life is that in, I, I can't hear God's voice in times of uncertainty if I'm holding on to and meddling in the unholy. I can't hear God's voice in times of uncertainty if I'm meddling in the unholy. And so it's the idea of cleansing. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins, uh, of all unrighteousness. So a, a separation from, a cleansing of, and then a devotion to. Okay, I separate myself. I, 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 Lord, I, I'm cleansing, through, I'm claiming the blood of Jesus. I ask your forgiveness for my attitude toward her and, and what I did here and what I said there. And then a devotion to. Now, being devoted to God, do you think God's satisfied with like a 30% devotion? No, he's not satisfied with 30%, 60%, 92%, 99.9%. He wants our full and complete devotion. And what that means to me is, God, I will go wherever you want me to go. I will do whatever you want me to do. I will sacrifice whatever you want me to sacrifice. I'm devoted to you for whatever you want to do in and through me. A devotion to. It's like a, a, a blank check. 
um, made to the order of God in the amount of whatever it takes. Whatever it takes, I'm willing to do. So, so, so Josh was saying we need to consecrate ourselves and be ready to do whatever he wants us to do. So Sue and I made a trip to Albuquerque and I think it was uh, probably July 1st and, and um, we were interviewed and, that, and miracle of miracles, they hired us and I had no church experience, I had no seminary degree, I didn't know what in the world I was doing. Uh, we came back and put our house on the market and now Houston, 1981, those of us, us gray hairs in here will remember this is after four years, uh, we, Jimmy Carter had been the president, we had... We had the highest inflation rate in modern history and the highest um, um, interest rates in modern history, like 16, 18%. Houston had 50,000 homes on the market and nobody was buying. And we had to list our home during that period. So um, we put our house on the market and people would come through and say, we love your house, but no, no bids, no contract, no nothing. So we began to pray, God, please sell our home. We prayed, we fasted, God, please sell our home. God, you can sell this house any way you want. You can sell it FHA, you can sell it VA, God, you can sell it conventional, God, you can sell it, you can sell it any way you want, but God, we're just scared to death. Would you sell this home cash? So after like a week, uh, nobody tried to talk us down. So we raised the price. <laughs> and we're praying and fasting. And uh, one afternoon, I get a phone call at the house. Now, you younger kids, they used to have this thing. It had a wire to the wall, and you had a cord. <laughs> and uh, so the phone rings, and this lady goes, uh, is this the house for sale on 11322 Inwood? And I said, yes, ma'am. She goes, I'd like to come see it. I said, oh, yeah. She said, you know... I have been, I, I, we had, Sue and I had put a sign on a cork board with black magic marker, letter for sale, the address and the phone number, and stuck it on an esplanade one block over from our house where there was some traffic. She said it was raining, and I wrote down the number, and I got home, and I started calling it, and it was the wrong number. She said, I've been dialing derivations of those numbers for two weeks. She said, I'd like to come see your house. So she comes over, walks to the house in about five minutes. She goes, I'll take it. And I said, okay. She said, now, will it be any problem if I buy it with cash? No, ma'am, it wouldn't be any problem at all. <laughs> no, ma'am, it wouldn't be any problem at all. Now, all that to say is that God doesn't always work that way. The point I'm trying to make is that in times of transition and uncertainty, when you seek God's face and you, you consecrate yourselves and you pull away from the common so that you can hear his voice, make sure you're clean and fessed up and righteous before him, and you're devoted to whatever he wants for whatever purpose he wants, then God does amazing things. Number three, step out in faith. Place God at the forefront of your life. 
consecrate yourselves, and then step out in faith. I love how this story ends, verse 12. Now, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe. And when the feet of the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, come to rest in the Jordan's waters, the waters will be cut off, and the water flowing downstream will stand up in a mass. And when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carried the ark of the covenant ahead of the people. And now the Jordan overflows its banks throughout the harvest season. Uh, but as soon as the priests carrying the ark reached the Jordan, their feet touched the water at its edge, and the water flowing downstream stood still, rising up in a mass that extended as far as Adam, the city next to Zarathon. And the water flowing downstream into the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea, was completely cut off, and the people crossed opposite Jericho. The people crossed opposite Jericho, and the priests carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel, nearly three million of them, crossed on dry ground until the entire nation had finished crossing the Jordan. I tell my congregation this often, that the most highly valued commodity in the kingdom of God presently is faith. Now, for all of eternity, it's going to be love. But, but on this side of heaven, it's all about faith. It's all about faith. And the problem with 21st century American Christians is we have this thing called mental assent, and we make the mistake of calling it faith. It's not. Faith is always an action. It's, a, it's an, a verb. It is something that you do. You step out on faith. You place your faith in, and trust in Christ and how he leads. And so that's a salvation thing, and it's a sanctification thing. Faith doesn't just, you know, something that saves you one time. It's faith is how you run your life. It's how the church is to be run. It's how the kingdom of God runs. It runs on faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1, of course, we know this. It says, no faith. Uh, now, faith is, is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Too many times we want proof up front. Am I right? All right, Lord, if you want us to do this. And uh, too many times we want proof. But it's hope first, then reality. It's faith first, and then the substance, the proof. Three months later, Sue and I found ourselves in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we didn't know what we were doing. We had uh, not taken a 25% pay cut. We had taken 25% of the income we had. And in one day, we went from $80,000 a year annual salary and, and benefits to 20,000. We were so poor we couldn't even pay attention. We, uh, we stumbled through the years, we struggled through the years, but in all of that, God proved faithful. You notice that when you think about it, Joshua was standing on the shoulders of Moses. And Moses was standing on the shoulders of Joseph. And Joseph was standing on the shoulders of Jacob and Isaac and ultimately Abraham. I saw this video a couple of years ago and I just thought it was perfect for this morning. Watch this.
Can you believe that? That little tyke scrambling up there at the top. Hanley, you have an incredible history. Generation after generation standing on the shoulders of the previous one. And now it's time for a new generation to stand on your shoulders. Pray with me. Father, honestly, I am overwhelmed this morning at the privilege to declare your faithfulness. At the privilege to challenge my brothers and sisters to walk by faith. I'm overwhelmed by the commitment and the sacrifice that most in this room have made, some of them their entire lives, to bring Hanley to this point. So God, I pray that um, your will would be done in this thing. Not my will, not Pastor Jared's, your will. I do pray, God, that you would continue to raise up a new generation that will carry on your work in this community. Bless us in that. Grant us favor. We couldn't succeed without you. But what a privilege that the opportunity we have to do better together and to reach a community desperate for you. I pray that the light of the gospel would shine brightly as it is today, but even brighter in the days to come. That you would receive the glory, that more worshipers would be around the throne from every tribe and tongue, nation, ethnic background, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, who is to come. We offer this up to you, Jesus. In your name.